Father God, who created the heavens and the earth, meet with us now. Transform us, renew us and restore us. God, the Son who died and rose from the dead, breathe into us new life. Draw us into your resurrection life to build your kingdom here on earth. God, the Holy Spirit, who hovered over the waters of chaos at the beginning, bring order to our lives. Transform us. Amen. So we continue our series uh, over the summer summer on stories um it's called children's stories revisited in your book i wanted to call it children's stories that we really shouldn't tell children but my my wife overruled that and we need to go for a shorter title we hear the story of david and goliath which i think is probably the story that we we tell most to our 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 children from the old testament i, I reckon um well it's a famous story we all know the story roughly don't we we've all heard the story before the story of David and Goliath. You know, this story that we tell for children that ends with, with a man helpless and unconscious on the ground. His sword being stolen, his head being chopped off, and then his head being paraded into, into the nearest city. What a great story to tell our children, eh? <laughs> That's David and Goliath. Um, let me just write a couple of things down that struck me in the reading. Uh, Saul is the king. Saul has been made king of Israel. He's been the king of Israel for some time now, by the time we get to this passage. And Saul has battled different people. Uh, His his right-hand man, Jonathan, has also been involved in some of the battles. But Saul, Saul has stumbled into a number of decisions which are not good. He's been impatient. He's made bad choices. And he started to fall out of the favour of God. He started to fall out of the step with the Holy Spirit that's working through him, that's anointed him. Uh, I won't dwell on this. If you want to, I think Nick, uh, when he talked about Samson and Delilah last week, really unpacked this well. So if you want to listen more about that kind of thing, talk, listen to Nick on our, on our website. But um, the Lord's blessing of Saul's kinship it starts to be removed. In 1 Samuel 16, uh, the Lord says, How long will you mourn for Saul? He says this to Samuel, the prophet. Since I rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And as the story unfolds there, eventually Samuel goes to Jesse and they, they go for all these sons and they say, Oh, these aren't none of these people right. There must be another son, and the youngest son is out tending the sheep, and he's brought in, and, and David is anointed to be the next king of Israel. Verse 14 in 1 Samuel 16 then says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit of the Lord, that's interesting in itself, tormented him. And actually, Saul is tormented by this evil spirit and he is comforted by David playing his harp, singing to him, 
bringing calm into this presence. David sings and plays. He's, he's, um, he's harped to comfort Saul's heart. And then this war that had been going on for a while starts to reach some conclusion and the Philistines gather just outside Jerusalem. And the Israelites and the Philistines, and the Philistines always come back as the bad guys. They were the bad guys last week in Samson and Goliath. They come back again and again and again. And that's an interesting thing that we can explore some other time. But the Philistines gather their army, and the Israelites are on the other side. And David is sent by his father to take, in short, sandwiches. Bring the pat lunch down for the, down for the, um, down for the, the armies. Just as a sideline here, it says something about David's character that he has been anointed king privately. David's been anointed king and yet he plays his harp to comfort the incumbent king who he knows is to succeed. He brings a pat lunch for the armies on the front line. If I was told I was going to be made king very shortly, I would be insufferable. <laughs> you would not get me doing delivering sandwiches. You would not get me doing the lunch run if you, <laughs> if you, made, if, if you told me I was going to be king soon. I wish I was. I wish I was more servant-hearted than that, but I'm, I'm still a work in progress. David is servant-hearted. He was the unlikely candidate to be king. But God sees in David his own heart. God sees something in David's heart that's different. So we come to the battle. Philistines on one side, Israelites on the other. And Goliath comes out of the ranks of the Philistines again and again and challenges the Israelites and says, if anyone defeats just me, then the battle is finished. The war is over. Just me. You just have to beat Goliath. And now this is strange. This doesn't happen anywhere else in, in ancient history. This is, this is very rare that one man stands out. But there's a problem with this. Goliath is over nine feet tall, we're told in the text. The armour that he's wearing weighs 50 kilograms. I don't know how to put this in context. Sometimes you get those big sacks of, of stuff from the... Um, Stuff from the garden centre that weighs 25 kilograms, don't they? And it weighs, you know, it weighs a lot. It'd be his armour would have been would have been steel or iron plates all knitted together. It would have been difficult even for you and I to stand. Well, it would be very difficult for me to stand. Maybe you might be able to stand in it, but it'd have been difficult to stand in. Who can defeat him? Who is big enough to defeat Goliath? Who has the right tools to defeat this man who is well-armoured, who has good weaponry? And Goliath mocks in them. He instills, instills fear into the Israelites, it's told. There's a charisma about Goliath. That when Goliath stands up and says, I will win, they believe him. Both about his size, both about his rep weaponry, but also about what he brings his character. It's actually, in the text, it's implied that they, they, they say the reward will be that you'll get the princess, you'll get the land, you'll also get your freedom. And the fact they say you'll get the freedom there is the assumption is the only person who they would be able to convince to fight Goliath will be a slave who will do it because their masters ordered them. 
that actually the fact that David, who is a, who is a free man, fights him is, is surprising because he does it of his own free will. But the temptation here is to rush ahead to the, 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 the ending because we know how this story ends. We know that David's going to slingshot him. But before we get there, we need to look at the fact that there is someone who should fight Goliath. When we look at who's tall enough, who's well enough equipped, who has the charisma to fight this Goliath, we're actually told in 1 Samuel 10, 23, that Saul, King Saul, stands head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites. Who's big enough? Saul's big enough. Actually, when David is preparing to battle, we have to leave this bit out because the reading is already quite long. You may have noticed. That when David is being prepared for battle by Saul, he puts on chains of armour and helmet and spear. He puts on all the tools that Saul, that, sorry, Goliath has, that Saul also has. But he chooses not to use them because he can't move properly with all that on. Saul is big enough. Saul has the right equipment. Saul has the charisma. We're told again and again that strong men chose to follow Saul. That Saul could go and pick his, whoever he wanted. Saul had the charisma. There was a right opponent for Goliath. There was someone who was physically equipped, who had the resources, who had the charisma. There was someone who it should have been. But God does not use Saul. Because your ability to face up to the problems, your ability to be used in God's service, is not about the resources you have, not about how you are equipped, not about what you have, your gifts, your skills. It's not about your height. It's not about our presence, our charisma, our tools. It's about the anointing of God on our lives. It's about doing what God, God calls us to do. The reason David fights Saul, sorry, fights Goliath, the reason David fights Goliath is because God has anointed him king. God does not choose the equipped. He equips the chosen. You are called to do more than you've ever possibly could imagine from your own resources because God is on your side. The battle is the Lord's, David says. And David's relying on a couple of things here. David's relying on a knowledge that God has anointed him because his own heart is pure. His own heart is servant-hearted. We find out, actually, I say his own heart is pure. Um, we find out David's a deeply flawed person, but he, he, he seats God. But he also looks at what God has done in the past. That when he was a shepherd and a bear or a lion stole a sheep, God equipped David to go after that lion and the bear, and the victories of the past inform how we will do the battles of today. What has God done in you in the past that he's now reminding you of that you'll be able to do something great in the future? What has God done in us in the past that he's now saying in the future you can do even more? Or is it that we want to stay within the, the things that we can do. 
that we have the right resources to do, that we are equipped? Or, as is absolutely clear in this story, do we look to the tall person with a chain mail and all the resources that they need? That person should be doing it. That person should be fighting the battle that is in front of me. That person should be fighting the battle that's in front of this church. Or do we look for where the presence of God is, is waiting for us? Who God is equipping? That's point number one. Point number two, I've only got two points. David is almost not anointed as king because he's the youngest in the family. He's ignored because of his youth. He can't possibly choose the youngest person, God. As the eldest brother of, of several children, I completely agree with this point. But I think we should read stuff of this. I mean, God's running this town. The older brother is always the best. The elder brother is angry that David is, is out of where he should be. You're the young brother. You should be attending the few sheep. Do you, do you notice that in the reading? There's, only, there's, a, there's a few sheep. You're only trusted with a few sheep because you're the youngest. Saul, when presented with David, says, for you are just a boy. Goliath, when David comes forward, looks at him and says, it says he disdained him for he is just a youth. How do we view people of a different generation to us? Particularly, how do we view a younger generation of people in our church, in our lives, in our families? I'm a recovering youth worker. I was a youth worker for a number of years. I enjoy working with young people. I did a degree in the subject. Do you believe they do degrees in youth work? <laughs> it's like, um, I work with the Bishop of Kensington and some of the London Diocese, uh, figuring out how we can champion youth work in the, in the London Diocese. We, I wanna, we want to see the number of young people doubled. Um, we've only got one more year left to do this. We're not doing very well. But we want to see the number of young people doubled. And the reason I'm passionate about working with young people is not just because I want more young people in the church in order that the, the church will continue, although that's really important. If we don't pass on the faith, the church will die out in one generation in England. The rots will have to cry out the glory of the Lord. We need to pass on the faith. But I also want to see young people in churches because they bring energy and vibrancy. They challenge the status quo. They shake us up sometimes, don't they? They bring something different to the midst. I've challenged a number of the diocesan um, ideas because that sometimes the dust wants to, if we get a hub and we get lots of young people, it will become attractive and we'll have, a, we'll have a church full of 100 young people and that'd be brilliant. And that, that is great and I bless that stuff and I hope it succeeds. But I also want to see young people in our local church feeding off the wisdom of the older generation, shaking up the status quo where we've fallen into traps. It's important that we have good intergenerational work. And this is really important for today's church. Because for the first time in history, we see generations changing really quickly. The advancement of technology means the way people think has changed dramatically over the past 60 or 70 years. And so we need to find a new way of intergenerationally working. Because my generation 
thinks differently to the older generation and the younger generation, so they've grown up in different ways. Can I give you an example? I'll give you an example about TV. How we engage with mass media has changed fundamentally since the Second World War. Since the Second World War, um, some people will remember a time when you didn't have a TV in your house. You just had maybe a radio, maybe you didn't have anything. There's a couple of people nodding. I won't, I won't sound you out because I don't want to give you your age away. But the way that you engage with the rest of the world was very different then to it is now. The way you received your news, the way you received, received information, the way you received how you understood the wider world to be. Some of you will remember this in the black and white TV. Some of you remember when TV started to become ubiquitous in every household, probably in the 60s. When they started to become colour, one of the greatest marketing achievements of the world was when they managed to sell hundreds and hundreds of colour TVs to broadcast the moon landing. You realise that the moon landing was the biggest uplift in sale of colour TVs, and it was entirely in black and white. <laughs> You remember, some people remember there's only one or, one or two channels. Now there's, I remember when the fifth channel came on board, when I was it was four channels. Now there seems to be an lim, unlimited number of channels. Some of you remember a time when what you would do is, you, you, if you wanted to change channel, you'd have to, I can't believe I have to say this, you'd have to get off of your sofa, go over to the TV and press a button. I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> Just look at that one for a moment. With that one, what happens is, what, what's on TV at the time, is you stick with and you have to make a really active decision to change over. If you have a control in your hand, your engagement with the world changes because you can flip channels, can't you? It changes, the, it changes fundamentally how you choose what you receive. It's changed again now. My children are growing up with something completely different. My children are growing up in a time of iPlayer and Netflix, and, and you can choose whatever you want to watch at whatever time. Those times when we found ourselves watching standard TV, and it comes to the end of the program, and my children watch, can I watch another episode of Paw Patrol? And you're like, no, you just have to decide what's on next. It's like injustice to them. They can now choose whatever program they want at whatever time. Can you see how those three things shape the way that we see the world a bit? You did, did. Be happy what you're given. You have to put some effort in to change it. You can flick and decide what you want. You can choose whatever you want. And that's just TV. How we engage with communication. People who used to, you know, times when you used to have to write letters to each other. Where you had to, yeah, then, then there's a phone that was actually attached by a cord to the, the wall, and you couldn't. And then there's a mobile phone you talk to people at any time. And now I mentor people in their 20s, and they say, "Oh yeah, I, I WhatsApp that person." I'm like, "Why didn't you ring them?" Because their natural way of communicating is now through text message and WhatsApp. It changes the way we see authority. It changes the way we see the way that society should be structured. And the danger is is that we all believe the way that we grew up, the way that we came to age, was the best way. I did a teaching session on this once, and someone said to me, well, isn't there something good about the delayed gratification of having to wait for next week's episode to be on? 
yeah, but you'd, you'd have to be at home at 6 o'clock to watch that particular episode. Your, your, your timetable was dictated by what was on, by what's on TV. You know, they often say that the Forsyth saga killed off Evensong. Because it was on, a, it was on a six o'clock on a Sunday night or seven o'clock on a Sunday night, and so people stopped going to Evensong because they watched watch something, watch something on TV. Yeah, if the Forsyth Saga was on iPlayer, they, people Evensong might still be, might be flourishing even more than it is today, because people should have watched it after Evensong. We all think the way we grew up was the best, and that causes tension between different generations. I'm going off piste a long way from the Bible here. I'm so sorry. But I, I think the way we understand this dictates the way that we talk to each other. It dictates the way that we love each other. It dictates the way that we understand how we pass on the faith. I've been working for about five years with a senior staff of London Diocese to work out youth strategy. This month, for the first time, they've come to the realisation in order to do an effective youth strategy... For the London Diocese, they have to listen to actual young people. <laughs> Five years. <laughs> because young people see the world through a different way that we can. And we can respond like Saul. You're just a boy. But actually, David was a boy who saw the world through a different lens to the elders. The elders saw fear. The elders saw problem. David saw an opportunity for the Lord to act. An opportunity for the Lord to do something wonderful. And if we're not careful, the schemes of the world which tells us to be divided by generations will win out. How many of you heard the phrase, I can't say the word, you know what I mean. Yeah? These people who are snowflakes, as the world would say, you know, people, who are, people who only care about avocado salad and stuff like that. You just, you know, this is generation... Like, they're about to turn 40, that generation. The, the press and the world are, are, wipe, are saying that those people's opinions don't count. We need to find a way, people, church, of listening to different generations. I'm not just saying promoting the voices of the young... We also need to say that the, the Bible says, look to your elders. When Joshua fought in the valley, the reason that he won was because Moses' elder was holding up his hands in pray, prayer. Young people, you will flourish. Not because of your own works, but because of what your elders are doing, are doing, and are praying for you. Elders, we have to pray for our young people. We need to find a new way to do intergenerational working. If we're not careful, what happens is we believe that to encourage one group is to disadvantage another. Every time we say, we're going to do this with our young people, someone in the room always goes, what about the old people? Well, we do some stuff for the old people as well. <laughs> it's, not that, it's not that one group win and the other group lose out. We all win. Because this passage tells us if we don't look to the young people we might miss our hero. We might miss the voice that says, the Lord is on our side, the Lord can win this battle. The Lord can defeat the enemy. The battle is the Lord's. That voice came from someone who is deemed to be too young. 
The kinship of Israel was going to pass from one generation to another, whether they liked it or not. Saul was not going to live forever. There was always going to be a successor. The question is whether that would happen with a joyous, servant-hearted passing on, or whether that, that would happen with pride, bitterness, jealousy, and in the end ended up with Saul trying to kill his successor. There will be another generation in this place after we've all gone. There will be another group worshipping God here. The question is, is, do we pass that mantle on with joy, with servant-heartedness, with a blessing? Or do we allow the bitter and twisted narratives of the world to, to seek into our, our thoughts? I've no idea why it's in our notice sheet today, but in our notice sheet it says, will you pray for the Reverend Charles Knapp and his wife Penelope? I don't know why it suddenly appeared on the notice sheet. I, I'm the 50th vicar of this parish, 5-0, since 1342, I believe. I stand on the shoulders of giants like Charles Knapp, who's on the memorial at the back, with Dibby Ram, who, who reordered this church and, and saw the first confirmation services in, in 70 years. And that's an honour of mine, but I also know there'll be a 51st vicar. I know there'll be a 100th vicar. And I hope and I pray that I can pass it on. Pass on something good and right, but pa pass it on also with a blessing and honour, because that's how God will be glorified through the ages. Amen.